If you have your copy of Scripture, we're in Acts chapter 16 this morning. Acts chapter 16. We've been going through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is in the New Testament. So it's in the last part of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 16. This morning we're going to look at verses 16 through 40 of Acts 16. Verses 16 through 40. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning of Acts chapter 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, but Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrate, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This morning I want to talk to you about how to respond right when we are wrong. 
How do we respond right when we are wrong? There are many sermons contained in this passage of Scripture that could be preached. However, I think the overall theme that we find in this passage of Scripture is a response of Paul and his companions to when they were wronged by a group of people. The election is over. Many of us have cast our votes for someone that we felt would make the best president of the United States of America. There's something about being American where we love to stand up for our rights. In fact, if someone wants to violate our rights, well, they're going to have a hard time violating our rights. This is just something uh, that is about us. We like to say things like, well, if they want my gun, they're going to pry it from my cold, dead hand. Right? I mean, we see that. If you're on social media, you've probably seen seen that uh, posted. And In fact, I think there's a whole uh, a conglomerate of, of postings that are called cold, dead hand. And it's all about the right to bear arms, which I believe in the right to bear arms, but and I have, I bear arms more than just my arms here, but uh, I'm not packing now or anything like that. But uh, but I, I believe in that right, and and I have guns, and and that's that's okay. But there's something about that. Um, we write to our congressmen, our congresswomen. We let them know how we feel about certain rights. In fact. There are classes and courses that, that we can take that will help you make sure that you get your rights and that your rights are not violated. We do not respond well when we are wronged. If truth be told, as Americans, we have never really experienced any real serious violation of our religious rights or liberty through some, though some would argue that that, that, that time may be coming soon. I know this, we don't really know what Real persecution is as Americans, though some would again argue that that time may be coming soon. Sure, we know a little of what it's like to be treated differently. Sometimes because we're a Christian, um, uh, there may be some different treatment towards us. However, we don't know the kind of persecution that others have faced in various parts of the world where Christians could be beaten or even beheaded for believing in Christ. In some ways, I don't even feel qualified to preach this passage of Scripture this morning because honestly, I've never faced severe persecution in my life. I've never faced severe violation of my rights. However, I trust as we work through this passage of Scripture that we would gain much from it and how we should respond when we are wronged. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens and as such, they had a right to a trial before punishment and Romans were not to receive any public beatings. However, as we see in this passage of Scripture, they are falsely accused, they are beaten, and they're thrown into an inner prison. They're locked in stocks, and we have no record of any trial ever taking place. Would you say that their rights have been violated? Certainly. Do you think that Paul and Silas had the right to be angry? Yeah. You can imagine if this happened in America, there would be lawyers called... There'd be all kinds of agencies involved. Who knows how many lawsuits would be filed. These magistrates would lose their, their job and they would be removed from office. However, we see Paul and Silas respond in a different way and it shows us how to respond right when we are wronged. What do you do when, when you're wrong? What do we do when we're wrong? Do we immediately seek to get revenge? 
Should we set someone straight? Well, I'm going to give them a peace of my mind. Well, first of all, we trust God. Why? Because God's sovereign and he rules over all things at all times. And as we see in our passage this morning, an earthquake rocks the prison where Paul and Silas are held. And by God's power, all of these chains are, are loosened and they fall off. However, the same power that sent that earthquake could have prevented the beating in the first place. It could have kept them from going into prison in the first place, but it didn't. You see, when we are wrong, we have this tendency to take matters into our own hands and, and to think, well, I got I to gotta fix this instead of trusting that God is doing something. And so this leads me to my first point that I think we find in this passage of Scripture and that I think is prevalent for everyone. And that's this. At some point, you will be treated wrong. At some point, you will be treated wrong. Plain and simple, at some point in our lives, somebody at some point will treat us wrong. It is a fact of life. Now, I know this may come as a shock to some folks. It seems to especially come as a shock to people that are protesting these days that somebody would treat them wrongly or that they would feel that they have been treated wrong. But we have so many word faith preachers out there declaring that as Christians, everything is always so great and everything is always like cotton candy and rainbows and unicorns when you come to Christ and nothing ever goes bad and everything's just perfect. But that's not the truth. We just finished 1 Peter in our small groups. And I love what Peter has to say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, don't be surprised. It's not something strange. This is normal. Church, don't be surprised just because God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And just because he is sovereign does not mean that he's going to spare you from an intense time of trial or from being wronged by someone else. That's not what it means. It is absolutely and utterly false teaching to say that Christians are exempt from trials and that they won't go through sickness or they won't go through poverty or they won't go through tragedies or they won't go through death. What is worse is that scripture teaches that these are common to man, that these things are common. Death and tragedies and poverty they're common to man for man and what is even beyond that is that as Christians we can expect to go through even more tragedies sickness poverty because we are followers of Christ look at Paul and Silas there's false accusations brought against them and then in verse 19 it makes it clear that the reason the slave girl's owners were mad was because they lost their source of money. However, when Paul and Silas are dragged before the authorities, that's not even mentioned. Why? Well, it doesn't really sound that great to say, hey, these guys uh, cast a demon out of this slave girl that we've been using to gain profit from, and we're really upset by it. That doesn't sound that good. 
So instead they say, hey, they're disturbing the city, proclaiming customs that, that we're not lawful, that that's not lawful for the Romans to accept or observe. And these statements were not even true. Listen, church, at some point you're going to be wrong, and it may be through false accusations. Someone may make a false accusation about you. You will be wrong. However, let's not stop there. Look at verse 20. Do you notice how the accusation starts? These men are Jews. The Roman Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome in A.D. 49. There was an ugly face of anti-Semitism that prevailed and was running high at this time. The Jewish religion was merely tolerated and Jews were prohibited from proselytizing any Roman citizens under any circumstance. At some point, church, you will be treated wrong. And it may even be because of your background, your racial background. But we can't stop there because Paul and Silas were treated wrong by the law. They are assumed guilty without ever having a trial. No hearing is given to them of any kind. They were not even afforded an opportunity to defend themselves. They were attacked and beaten with rods and then locked in stocks where, where that alone is painful torture. Now you may never be beaten like this, but listen church, you will be treated wrong. And it may even be that your legal rights will be violated. Even today, our religious rights are being infringed upon in a plethora of ways. It is like forcing a baker to bake a cake for a homosexual wedding or all kinds of other things that we see going on. They face stiff fines or keeping students from praying at a high school athletic event because we say, well, they're not allowed to pray. They can't have their religious freedom and these kinds of things just kind of throw any religious right out of the window however what I'm saying is that no matter what form it takes we shouldn't be surprised when we're treated wrong God doesn't give us an exemption from wrong treatment even when we're in the middle of doing his will and pursuing his kingdom there are missionaries that are in God's will who have given their lives literally in the pursuing of the kingdom of God. God does not promise that we won't walk through difficulties. Paul and Silas were no exception. They were thrown in jail. Notice they didn't, they didn't uh, sit there lamenting on their condition. And they didn't sit in the jail cell and, and grumbling and complaining. They did not even sit there and question the will of God. Thinking, well, you know what? Maybe we should have never came to Macedonia in the first place. I, I guess we must have misinterpreted that vision that you had, Paul, that said that we should go to Macedonia. And remember when we got together and we decided maybe we shouldn't went to Macedonia because if we didn't go to Macedonia then we wouldn't be in the prison in the first place they knew that being in God's will was not a guarantee of safety nor protection from trial Christian at some point you will be treated wrong and in those moments in those moments Satan strongly tempts you to respond in a way that does not glorify God and he will tempt you to say things like if God exists and if God is good why didn't he protect me from this situation and the solution is to resist the devil and be firm in your faith in God 
Your trials are not an indication that God does not exist, nor are they an indication that he is not loving nor good. They are an indication that he has a greater purpose and that we do not understand that greater purpose. And our responsibility during these times is to trust and obey God, even when you are treated wrong. You trust and obey him. Secondly, when you are treated wrong, trust in the Lord to respond right. When you are treated wrong, trust in the Lord to respond right. Now, I know everybody's thinking, oh, he only has two points. Well, he's about over. It's about done. Well, I have four subpoints under point number two. Okay? So, when you are treated wrong, trust in the Lord to respond right. There are several things we can learn from Paul and Silas here and how they responded when they were treated wrong. Remember first that eventually you will be treated wrong. Just remember that. Remember you're going to be treated wrong. Some of you already know that. You've gone through plenty of wrong treatment. Then we must trust in the Lord to respond right. So let's see how it is that we trust. Let's learn from Paul and Silas and see how it is that we trust in the Lord to respond right. First of all, respond with joy in the Lord. Respond with joy in the Lord. Now, this isn't some sort of fake joy that you manage to muster up and you, you kind of, well, I'm just going to put a smile on my face kind of thing. Rather, this is a genuine joy that is found only in the Lord. Paul and Silas have had their rights violated. They've been beaten. They are then thrown in stocks. They are in the inner prison where it's dark and dingy. And their response, their response to all this is to pray and sing hymns of praise to God. And oh, by the way, if you didn't, weren't paying attention, it's at midnight that they're doing this. Most of us are probably asleep at midnight, except for you crazy night owls, but, but it's at midnight. How often do we allow small things in life to rob us of joy? I mean, the smallest little thing, sometimes it, it just cuts us off. or it, uh, You know, maybe somebody cuts in front of us in, in traffic, right? And we're, ooh! That person. I'm gonna I'm gonna tailgate them now and show them that they shouldn't have cut me off. Somebody cuts in front of you at line. You know, you ever been in a long line? It's like two hours to, to get to the front of the line and somebody cuts in front of you. Don't tell me you're not sitting there thinking, well, who do they think they are? <laughs> who do they think? Oh, they think they have connections, right? We think those kinds of things. How dare them? How dare them? Somebody takes the last donut on Donut Sunday that we wanted. <laughs> I wanted that donut. And we get, we get all tight about it. These guys, they're in prison. Rights violated. And they are expressing joy. I don't know about you, but that is convicting to me. Especially when I grumble over such minor 
irritations. How are they able to do this? And the answer is simply because the Lord is the source of their joy. And when we focus on the circumstance, we don't find joy. But when we focus on the giver of joy, we find joy. We are told to delight ourselves in the Lord in Psalm 37 verse 4. All through the Psalms we are told to magnify the Lord and to exalt the Lord. It's not a suggestion that, oh, if you want to magnify and exalt the Lord, then go ahead and do it. It's a command that we magnify and exalt them. Whether we feel like it or not, we glorify the Lord. And Christian, don't you understand that your joy is found in Him and not in your circumstances of life or, or the reason that you go through life without joy is, is, um, is because your focus is wrong. The reason that, that we walk through life and grumbling and complaining and mad and angry is because your focus is not on the Lord, but your focus is on the circumstance of your life and you think that somehow you've been treated wrong and you've been dealt a bad hand and how dare someone treat you wrong or deal you a bad hand. But when your focus is on Him, it's joy. Paul and Silas they wouldn't have been pray, praying and praising the Lord at midnight in a dungeon if it wasn't a part of their everyday life. They had a habit of daily focusing on how great the God we serve is. They would meditate mentally on the Lord on a daily basis. They would hide His words in their heart. That they would praise Him for the blessing because Christ was a vital part of their lives. He wasn't just an afterthought. Man, how convicting this should be to us. And it is to me when I make Christ just an afterthought of what I'm doing instead of the focus of everything that I'm doing. How great it is to focus on the grace of God that has been bestowed on us that we experience such a great salvation. We should meditate on that salvation daily. This is why Paul could say such profound things like he said all throughout Scripture. He would say things like this to live is Christ and to die is gain in Philippians 1:21. and the life I now live in the flesh I live by the faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 and why he could be sitting in a prison in Rome and write about joy and say finally my brethren rejoice in the Lord Philippians chapter 3 verse 1 and rejoice in the Lord always and I'll say it again rejoice Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 in the midst of prison because his joy church was found in the Lord not in the circumstance of his life oh these words of Paul should be so convicting to us in our hearts oh the things that we allow to steal our joy if only Paul had said rejoice in the Lord sometimes if only he said rejoice in the Lord when times are good and you, when you feel blessed in life, rejoice in the Lord. But Paul said rejoice in the Lord always. Seriously, how are we supposed to rejoice in the Lord always, Paul? How do we rejoice in the Lord when a, when a family member is dying of cancer? How do we rejoice in the Lord when we go through a miscarriage in our marriage how do we rejoice in the lord when we lose a child paul how do we rejoice in the lord in the midst of some of the most difficult things that this life has to offer how do we rejoice how do we do it christian how do we rejoice in these things and paul says in 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, Rejoice always in everything. Give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How do we do that? Paul must be on another planet. Here's the thing, Christian. Before we think that Paul had an easy life, that Paul must have had everything going for him, or else he wouldn't be able to say such a thing. Remember his own words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger from the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without even having food, in cold and experience. Exposure and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. And Paul still said, Rejoice always. Paul was a man who learned to focus on the Lord in all of his circumstances. Paul learned to look for the abundant grace of God no matter what came his way. In every circumstance, in every situation, he knew that he didn't deserve heaven. But by God's grace, he was going to heaven. And that remained his focus. And he was filled with joy. The joy of the Lord in every circumstance. Christian, do you realize you don't deserve heaven? You don't. And the minute that you think you deserve it, it's not grace. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And when my focus is on the grace of God, that he would look on me such a filthy wretch and grant me salvation. There's joy. Oh, Christian, that we would refuse to allow the circumstances of this life to rob our joy when we're treated wrong. When you're treated wrong, respond with joy. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Matthew chapter 5. Or as James wrote, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, James chapter 1. Or how about Peter? But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation, 1 Peter chapter 4. It's not enough just to grit your teeth and endure trials. God wants you to rejoice in the midst of the trials of life. And as we read this, we get the full picture. We see that the prison shakes and Paul and Silas are eventually let go. But listen, they didn't know that when they were sitting in the prison cell. They didn't know that when they were singing in that prison. For all they knew, the very next morning, they were going to be executed. Or perhaps they would just starve in prison and die a slow, agonizing death. They had no clue what was going to happen when they were singing and praising God. It had nothing to do with the outcome that was going to take place. Their focus was not on the outcome, but on their God. God is not always going to send some sort of powerful earthquake. He is not always going to send an angel to rescue you from, from uh, some sort of trial in life. Many faithful saints of God have died. 
for their faith. They've been burned at the stake. We could read Fox's books of martyrs and read how many of them, while going up in flames, saying praises to God. Church, being filled with joy is not dependent on your circumstance. It is a result of a focus on the sovereign God. And you have to daily cultivate it. And when we understand that our circumstances don't matter, when we understand no matter what I'm going through, it doesn't matter, we will respond with joy. Listen, Paul and Silas, sitting in prison, beaten, wronged, mistreated. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. You know why? Do you know why none of that mattered? Do you know why none of the circumstances that Paul and Silas went through mattered? Because God mattered more. And when you walk through this life, and when you are wrong, and you go through the trials, and you go through the circumstances, you go through the hard times, it doesn't matter. You know why? Because God matters more. He matters more. Our joy is found in the Lord and in the salvation that he's given to us. And nothing is out of his control. And for that reason, you can have joy. This is crucial to our walk as Christians. We live in a time where Christians go around grumbling and whining and complaining and being discontented with so much in life and always looking like, you know, somebody just smacked them in the face or something. We're kind of like the Israelites who thought it was better back in slavery at times in Egypt than, than it is to be with God and His provisions in the wilderness. We don't have our joy because we do not cultivate it. It's not an option, but it's foundation and mandatory for everyone that's saved that you are to have joy in the Lord. Respond with joy, but also respond in a way that is a good witness to others. Respond in a way that is a good witness to others. So when you're wrong, respond with joy. And when you're wrong, respond in a way that's a good witness to others. You know it is amazing to read this and read about how Paul and Silas were singing in such a difficult situation. They're singing because they had hearts full of praise and joy towards God. And they knew the joy of His salvation. However, here's the thing. They're singing and praising God was a witness to those around them. This is how it should be. Our response of joy should be a witness to those around us. When we are wronged or trouble comes our way and we respond with joy, it, it will cause people to say, there's, there's something different about that person. They will see that our lives back up what we say. Look at the last part of verse 25. I don't know if you notice it or not, but it says this, the prisoners were listening to them. Church, people are listening to you as a Christian. They're watching you. They're seeing how you respond to different things. How you respond will either be a witness or it won't be. If Paul and Silas were thrown into this prison and they start talking about how their rights were violated and, and they start having a pity party and, and they were going on and on about how they were mistreated and they're, they're just trying, we're just in here trying to serve the Lord. I can't believe that this would happen. And all they did was fall into a state of depression and complaining, then they would not have been a witness. Here is what we must realize anytime that we have been 
mistreated or any time we feel that we have had our rights violated. We're staring down the barrel of an opportunity to bear witness for Jesus Christ. Listen, you're going to be treated wrong. You may be treated wrong in your own home. You will be treated wrong at work. You'll be treated wrong in many other places throughout your life. And you should focus on bearing a witness for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because those around us who are lost will be watching and listening to how we respond. Do not forget your witness. Thirdly, we respond in a way that trusts the sovereignty of God. We respond in a way that trusts the sovereignty of God. How often do we go through circumstances in life and we say or even think that we trust that God is sovereign over all things? We say, well, I trust God's sovereign over all things. But we display the opposite. I have a feeling if, if we were the ones in prison... We would have been crying out to God, God, get us out of here. Get us out of this prison. We don't know what Paul and Silas prayed, but, but as we look through their letters and as we look through Paul's letters in the New Testament and see what Paul's written, I have my doubts that they would have been praying, Lord, get us out of this situation. In fact, if they were praying for God to rescue them, then when the chains fell off, I think they would have ran, but they didn't. However, throughout the scripture, we do see Paul concerned for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that their prayers would have been focused on the gospel during this time. It would have been something along the lines of, Lord, we may not understand why we are in prison, but we trust in you and your sovereignty. We know that you are in control and we know that you want your gospel to go forth. So we pray, God, that your gospel would go forth in this situation. Paul and Silas knew God could have prevented the beating. He could have stopped them from being thrown into prison. And he could have prevented them from being shackled. But he didn't. They trusted in God's sovereign purpose. They knew he had a reason for this trial. They knew that there was a reason for them going through what they were going through. We know from reading all of the scripture and reading about Paul. That, that he uh, has this conversion experience with a jailer and his whole house. And Paul knew that there was something beyond him. He knew God was sovereign. Paul's goal and focus was that Christ would be exalted. That the gospel would be proclaimed. Paul trusted God would, would be sovereign in all that he did. And that his sovereign purpose and that his glory would prevail whether Paul was delivered from this prison or whether he died in the process, he trusted as for God's glory. Here's the real issue for us, church, when those times come and you're treated wrong. Do you trust in the sovereign creator of this universe who could have prevented the situation in the first place? If he had willed to do so, do you trust in him or do you instead trust in yourself? If you trust in him, then do you pray, Lord, take this circumstance that I'm going through, take this situation, and I pray that you would advance your gospel message. 
Let me share with you something that is very interesting that we often gloss over, but when Paul wrote his prison epistles, he never said them, said uh, to them, Paul, a prisoner of that dirty routin, so are no good for nothing, Caesar. He never said that. That stinking Caesar, I'm in prison because of him, and let me write this prison epistle to you so that you understand it. That's not what he said. You know what he did say? Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Wow. Paul trusted in the sovereignty of God. He knew that at any moment, if God so desired, at any moment he could overrule Caesar. Now I know what some of you are thinking. As we kind of go through this, you're like, well, man, Pastor, what are you saying? I mean, are we... Are we so supposed to be pacifists? Are we supposed to be doormats? Are we, are we supposed to never take a stand for our rights ever? Because I'm American. I want to stand for my rights. I'm not saying that. Because this leads to my last point. Which is this. No win. And why to take a stand? Know when and why to take a stand. We can hear a message like this and think we should never take a stand. That we should never stand up against wrong and wrongdoing. However, that's not the case. The next morning, what does it say? The next morning, the magistrates told the jailer to release Paul and Silas. I'm sure they felt after uh, they had received their beating and spent the night in prison, I'm sure that these magistrates probably are thinking, well, those guys are going to be sent packing. We showed them. But what does verse 37, what does verse 37 say? I mean, this to me kind of it, it blows my mind. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come. Let them come and take us out. Why do you do that? Why was that his response? I mean, Paul has now been beaten with rods and thrown in prison and, and shackled and saw God do a mighty movement. So why, is his, why did he respond that way in the first place? Why did he say, we're Roman citizens, folks. You better knock it off. Why did he do that? Why does he respond now that way? Why? In fact, why did he just leave? First... I believe because Paul had a desire for all people to be treated justly. Paul had a desire for all people to be treated justly. It's not some people. Paul valued the fact that all people 
are image bearers of God. Y'all sang the song, right, when you were little? Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Every people group, whether you like it or not, is an image bearer of the almighty God. They are made in his image. Paul knew this. And he knew that he and Silas had not been treated right. But in fact, they were treated unjustly. He knew that if he made the magistrates come down and apologize, that the word would spread about what had happened. And maybe the next time, they wouldn't go around beating a man without some sort of trial. Paul knew his actions would hold these magistrates accountable. And the next time these accusations came, it would make someone follow the Roman law that was in place. Paul knew this. And church, let me just say, that when it's time to take a stand, it's when we come to the defense of people that are not being treated justly. And I don't care who they are. Because they are all image bearers of God. Amen. And when you stand, you stand because you see that someone is being treated unjustly. And they bear the image of your Creator. Secondly, Paul, I believe, was concerned for the church and the advancement of the gospel. They're Christians in Philippi. And by making these men realize they had committed an offense against Roman citizens, Paul was making sure they wouldn't trouble any believers in Philippi. He also knew that if they knew he was a Roman citizen, they would not prevent him from returning. Plain and simple, Paul stood on his rights to protect the church and the cause of Christ so that the gospel of Jesus Christ could be advanced. Listen carefully. Paul could have pushed even further than he did. These magistrates committed a capital offense. It was a capital crime in what they did. And their punishment could have been severe. But Paul's response shows the entire city how a follower of Christ should respond. He lets their wrong go unpunished and he proved that Christians are not out for personal vengeance. Listen church, this is what is wrong with Christians today. We think that somehow we are supposed to get even. That we are supposed to get our revenge. That's not the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ is to forgive those who have sinned against us. And that's not in acting like nothing happened. That's not like pretending like it. See, sometimes we, we confuse forgiveness. We're like, oh, well, that means that I got to pretend like they didn't really wrong me and that I got to pretend like nothing really happened. That's not what it's saying at all. Because in this case, Paul is able, able to forgive, but at the same time, he holds the magistrates accountable. Why? To change their behavior. And we have to do the same. We don't forgive only if we get our revenge. Like, okay, I got my revenge. Now I can forgive them. 
we forgive and hold those who have wronged us accountable. There's a lot in scripture that teaches us when to stand for our rights and when to let it go. We've covered some of that in previous messages, but let's be clear. The Bible does not teach that we should never defend ourselves. It doesn't teach that we must be pacifists, either in the legal realm or or when there are aggressive attacks against our character or person. That's not what the scripture teaches. The point of 2 Corinthians, which Paul writes, was a defense of his character and his apostolic ministry. So the scripture doesn't teach us that we don't defend ourselves. But let me tell you what is abundantly clear from this passage of scripture. It's this, that when you treated wrong, your response as a believer is to be motivated by the joy for God's glory and the advancement of his gospel. And it's to be guided by God's justice through the law and government that he has given to you for the well-being of our society. Let me say that again, because I'm pretty proud of that. Okay? When you're treated wrong, your response as a believer is to be one that's motivated by joy for God's glory first and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how you respond is for God's glory and for the advancement of the gospel. That is to be guided by God's justice through the law and government that he has given to us for the well-being of our society. It is never okay as a Christian to act out out of personal vengeance, to say, I got to get even. Never okay. It's never okay to act out out of personal greed or any other selfish motive. We do not respond because of selfish motives that defames the glory of God and elevates me to be above God. But I respond so that God gets the glory. Now I know I didn't go into detail of the healing of the servant girl nor in the detail of the conversion of the jailer. This is because I believe that those are sub-themes of this overarching theme in this passage of Scripture as to, as to how we respond when we're wronged. How do you respond to this message? How should you respond? You, you hear this. How do you respond? I mean, we've seen some crazy responses over this last week from people that feel that they've been wronged, right? I mean, haven't we seen, I don't know, unless you're living in a hole somewhere, you've probably seen some responses from people. Some people, you know, throwing mom off cocktails at people. Some people out in the streets terrorizing cities. Um, People getting beat up because of who they voted for. Man in Chicago dragged out of his car and beaten. That's not, okay, let's be clear. That's not appropriate responses as Christians. You know why? Because that's elevating their preference above God. A Christian should never respond that way. How do we, how do we respond to this message? 
First and foremost, I believe this. This message should speak to us about our joy. Our joy in the Lord, no matter our situation. It must start there. Because everything else that flows from this passage starts with joy. And we are able to have this joy because we have entrusted our life to him and it is secure in him. When we have that joy, guess what? We respond appropriately. This means that even when we're wronged, if our first response is joy, trusting in his sovereignty, then he is glorified and others are drawn to the Savior. So I simply ask you this morning, how are you responding to the circumstances of your life? What is your response to the things that come your way? Are you trusting in his sovereignty and responding in joy and therefore drawing others to the Savior? Or are you instead trying to do it on your own saying, boy, I got this. I'm going to show them. I'm going to prove how right I am and how great I am. Secondly, are you even able to trust in God's sovereignty? And in that, I mean this. Do you even know Christ as your Savior? Because without knowing Christ as your Savior, you have nothing to trust in. You are totally dependent on your own knowledge. Why do we see people acting the way they do? Because they are dependent only on their own knowledge and their own strength. And, and that's all they have to depend on to handle the circumstances of life. Because their life has no purpose. Because they don't know the Lord. And so they seek some sort of purpose. I want my life to count. But they don't know Jesus. If you don't know the Lord, you can't trust in His sovereignty. And so secondly, I say, do you know the Lord this morning to trust in his sovereignty in the first place? And finally, you can respond by knowing when and where to take a stand. When you take a stand, are you sure it's for his glory? Are you sure it's to advance his kingdom? Or is it because you have selfish motives? May God enable us as believers when we are mistreated that we would imitate Paul and Silas and respond in like manner bringing glory to our Heavenly Father and advancing His kingdom and doing what is right that God would be glorified in our church and others would be drawn to the Savior. We're going to close with prayer and we're going to sing a song and maybe this morning you said, well, I, I need to respond to this message. And maybe it's just you need to pray and say, Lord, I need to, I need to trust in you. The circumstances of my, my life, I've not, I've not had any joy. And, and I'm not trusting in your sovereignty. And I'm trying to take things into my own hands. And maybe you just need to pray to the Lord and say, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation you've given to me maybe that's you this morning maybe you need to come forward and do that you can do that maybe this morning you'd say i don't even know christ i i have nothing to trust in my life has no meaning it has no purpose and i need christ as my savior maybe that's you this morning i'll be standing down front i'd love to talk with you and finally maybe this morning you'd say you know what i've been taking a stand for all the wrong reasons 
It's been personally motivated. It's not been motivated by him. Would you follow the example of Paul and Silas this morning? However the Lord may have directed you or convicted your conscience this morning, I pray that you would respond to him. I'll be down front. I'd love to pray with you if that's what you need. If you need to come and pray, you can do that. You can do it in your pew. But however the Lord has directed you, I pray that you'd respond this morning. Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank